Welcome to Honorado and Bagnardi. Chris Honorado, Sean Bagnardi. Uh, boy, what a day. We can actually talk about baseball yeah. without talking about the mess that is going on with baseball. It's going to be fun. Yeah, man. I'm excited about it. Uh, I got I got this going today. Yeah. And I'm ready to go. I've got a lot of Mets questions and a lot of questions in general. So I'm excited about this. Well, yeah, as as we told Jay, you are a huge Mets fan. Uh, I'm a Braves fan, which yeah. you and I butt heads about all the time, which is fun. And I said this in the newsroom. I can't wait to get Jay's opinion on this, too. If they do play a 60 or 70 game season, you know, we're all like, ah, whoever wins the World Series is not going to matter. And so I jokingly said in the newsroom, it'll obviously be the Mets or Braves. And yeah, neither right. one of us will be able to claim it as a real title. <laughs> right. There's no doubt. All right, so let's bring on our guest here. This is this is really cool. Jay Horowitz, who is a Mets PR legend. And he goes no, I'm old, I'm old. I'm old. Nah, no, no. See, <laughs> when when you use the word like long time, that makes you old, but you you are a legend in the well, sport, Jay. So many people across baseball know you from your nearly 40 years in the game. First of all, thank you for joining us. It, it's great thanks for having me, guys. And you've got the new book out. It's called Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. I'm a Jersey kid, too. We'll get into some of that. I've got fairly Dickinson ties as well, Jay, which I want to good, ask you about. Um, but first off, what do you make of where we currently stand with Major League Baseball? You've been around the game for so long. You've been through work stoppages. Do you feel like we are close to having a season? You know, once again, the last two years, I've kind of changed jobs. I've been in the alumni part of it. I don't really want to get into the president. All I want to say is I hope they can have a settlement. The country needs baseball. And hopefully the, the two sides can reach an agreement. And in not too distant future, we can get back on the field. That's what I'm hoping for. But I don't really want to comment on the present day stuff, if you don't mind. Well, look, we're with you. We hope one way or another baseball yeah. play because we're both dying to watch right. it. Um Jay, the book, uh, which I've read, and I have plenty of Mets fans in my family being from northern New Jersey, so I'm, I'm going to get them a copy of this book, too, because initially I thought, you know what, this book is just going to be for Mets fans. I don't know that it's deeply going to interest me, but the stories are so captivating. How in the world did you keep the Rolodex in your mind for so long? Well, you know what, I really, uh, I'm going to be 75 years old next year. And in, in August, I really didn't have any intent in writing a book, but a couple of reasons why I wrote the book. You know, I was born um, with a right, I was born blind in my right eye. My mother was, my, my mother was carrying me in, in a, during pregnancy. I got glaucoma. She got German measles. I got glaucoma. So I was born with uh, one blue eye, one green eye. I was ridiculed a lot as a kid. And when I was about 12 or 13, uh, the doctor said the glaucoma spread into the other eye. So I had a get that operator on, put an artificial eye in. And I was always too embarrassed to say I had an artificial right eye. I was, yeah, well, I can't see, a little blind. You know, I figured maybe one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, it could be a message to some young kids growing up. You don't have to be perfect to get ahead in the game. You have to have some passion and be a stick to it and miss it. That's one of the reasons you know, I wanted to write the book. The other one was, the other two were, you know, Shannon Ford, who worked for me for 22 years, died of breast cancer. 44 years old, two young kids. I wanted to have a chapter in her so her legacy was not forgotten. And there were two good friends of mine, Mark and Linda Emmer. We became like my second family after my parents died. They wanted me to write a book, so it's tribute to Mark and Linda. 
I wanted to put the book down and, you know, and not very, it was never going to be a, a tell-all book. It was a feel-good book. The stories, you know, how the guys make me you know, play jokes on me and uh, what I had to do in the locker room to get by. That's why I really wrote the book, guys. Well, without spoiling too much, because we do want everybody to go read it, can can you tell us about one of the, your favorite stories from the book and, and why it is your favorite story? Well, people always say to me, you know, what do you remember most? What's about 40 years? You know, 86 was great. We came back from, you know, two strikes, two hours in the 10th inning, game six to win. Probably my best memory of my time with the Mets was what the organization did during 9-11. Um, you know, we from the ownership, the Will Ponds, down to Bobby Valentine, down to the players, you know, uh, Robin Ventura, Todd Zeal, Mike Piazza, Johnny Franco. We made a difference in the community. We helped the city heal. We went down to ground zero a lot of times, brought gifts to the firemen, the policemen, visited people in the hospital. And I really think we made a difference in the community. And with Mike hit the home run, it really gave people a chance to smile for the first time in almost 10, 12 days. So that's been my really my fondest memory. Of course, 86 was great, but number one would have to be what we did as an organization in 9-11. And there's an entire chapter in the book about 9-11. There are chapters dedicated to the managers you worked with, the Davey Johnson stories are phenomenal. Uh, and of course, any fan of the Mets who wants to relive some of the magic uh, in the 80s uh, we'll get to do it through this book and all the way up to present day, as Jay has said. Uh, now in, I know Jeremy Schapp used this line, I'm going to steal it, kind of an emeritus role uh, working with New York Mets alumni right, to bring right. them back into the organization. Are, are you enjoying this current role, Jay? Yeah, honestly, two years ago, in the summer of 2018, Jeff Wilpon, the owner of the Mets, came to me. You know, we like you to switch roles. The next year, which was last year, would have been the 50th anniversary of the 69 team. We, we didn't really do a lot on a day-to-day -day stuff with the alumni. You want to give it a try. Honestly, I wasn't really crazy about it. I enjoyed the camaraderie in the locker room. I enjoyed the travel. I enjoyed the back and forth with the media. And I said, you know what? Let's give it a try. It's really been very fulfilling to reach out to guys, bring them back to the Mets family. And one story I like to tell is Hobie Landrup was the first player taken by the Mets in the 1961 draft. I called him about five, six months ago. He said I was the first member of the organization to reach out to him in 50 years that's what we're trying to do is to bring you know reach out to the people who haven't been forgotten a little bit let them know we still love them let them know they still belong it's really been very satisfying working with guys like ed cranepool cleon jones uh you know butch husky jay payton you know doc good and daryl who are dear friends so i really been very rewarding now and i think we're making a difference in what we're doing you mentioned Doc and Daryl. A lot's been written. A lot has been talked about, about the 86 team. So I'm curious from your perspective on them, is there maybe a misconception about the team or just something in general about that team that you think maybe a lot of people don't know that they should know or that you'd like them to know about that championship team? Well, there were, there were a lot of different personalities on the team, uh, you know, when I came to the park each day at Chase Stadium, I never knew what to expect, but they, they blended well. We had a great mix from Gary to Mookie to Lenny to, to, to Wally Backman. And, you know, a lot of different personalities, but they got along. You know, it's well documented. Doc and Daryl did have problems off the field, but the great part of that is, you know, they both turned their lives around. Daryl and his wife, Tracy, are now ministers. And Doc does a lot of good work with the high schools and hospitals. So uh, they're still dear friends. I speak to 
a couple times a month. It's one of the things about my new job. You know, they still do things for me. We're in contact. And I let them know I still care. They really have done a lot to turn around what they had problems early on. For our Capital Region viewers here in, in the Albany area, New York, Jay, uh, I want to make a point here to let them know in the book, you will find references to the great Barry Kramer and Pat Riley from Schenectady, yeah. uh, which I thought was really cool. And, and I, I, you know, I didn't know until the pieces kind of you put them together with with your NYU connections. So that's really cool for Capital Region viewers who are who are hanging out with us here this morning. Uh, the book is Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. Uh, Jay, Sean loves this fact about the book. Jacob deGrom wrote your foreword. Why was it Jacob? Let me tell you how that came. Can I give you the rest for one second? I went yep. to NYU. Uh, I was never an athlete. I went to NYU really because of Barry Kramer. Um, I used to go. My dad used to take me to garden and watch him play. He and Art Heyman had the best jump shots I've ever seen. And I went there with Barry Kramer, Happy Harrison. We were in the number one ranked team in the country when I got there as a freshman. You know, in, in '63, and uh, I think Barry's a judge now in the area, but I haven't spoken to him in a long time. And Barry was one of my childhood idols. Uh, Jacob Degrom, interesting. The publisher came to me and said, "Could you show that you reach all the different, not just the older guys?" I had a really good relationship with Jacob. I still do. Today's actually his birthday. Uh, Jacob, we had a funny way of going back and forth. I would say, "Jacob, I need you to do a story, an interview." He said, "Okay." We have a basketball net in the locker room. If you make two or three shots, I'll do the story for you. <laughs> I never made two or three shots, and he always did the story for you. And the reason I would go to that length, you know, I'm, I'm about 40 years older than Jacob DeGrom. I had to try to ingratiate myself to the players, let them know I wasn't just a suit. I cared about them. I was willing to take a joke. The other trick we had, Jay, I'll do a story for you, uh, Jacob, but got to go out in the field to hit fungos to me and Steve and Matt. So like I went out in the field, missed every other ball, hit the fungos. He did the story. So Jacob knew that I was uh, was an okay guy. I wasn't a stuffed shirt from the second floor. I could be one of the guys and we had a great relationship and Jacob was kind enough to sit down and write a couple of words about me. In the foreword, Jacob okay. mentions how you gave him a bit of advice about addressing the media after his first game. And it got me thinking, you know, us us media types can be can be tough and we can get on the nerves of some athletes from time to time. Throughout your career, what has it been like on the PR side, sort of advising the players through the process of dealing with the media? Basically, it's simple is is don't lie and be honest. And if you have a part in the game, any part in the game, be in front of your locker. One of my favorite stories, Tim Tuffle, 86 World Series. We lose the first game, one nothing to the Red Sox. He makes an error in the, in the second inning, turns out to be the winning run. Tim stood in front of his locker two hours, wave after wave, how he made the error. When I told Jake when he came, it was his first start against the Yankees uh, at City Field. I said, Jake, the only thing I can tell you, I don't want to tell you what to say. I don't want to script anything. Just be there, good or bad. And they have a great relationship to me. They know if you give eight runs, you'll be there. They know if you pitch a one hitter, you'll be there. That's what he's done. You know, there's no doubt in my mind, Jacob is going to rookie of the year, two Cy Young. He's still got more awards ahead of him. What I like about him, he, he, he doesn't go fully extra in his stuff. All he wants to do is pitch. His walk-up song is, I'm a simple man. And I mean by that, all he cares about is pitching. In the last two years, he hasn't got a lot of great run support. 
He still won games, and he doesn't never alibis. He never blames anybody. Never blames the lack of offense. Hey, I should have given up no run. That's what I really love about him, Jacob. I mean, we he's still a pretty close friendship with him. Speaking of present day Mets here, Jay, what is it about this year's squad? If we do ever get on the field, that that excites you? Well, I think they have a good blend of you know uh, pitching. I think you know with, with Alonzo and, and uh, uh, you know Jeff McKnight and, and Ramos and you know in the outfield, and I think Rosero is going to be as a future star. Um, and, and I think you know Stephen Matz and, and you know pitching staff with, with Walker. And the other guys they've had, I think they have a good play. And I think the bullpen is solid. I think Familia is going to bounce back and have a good year. I think Diaz is going to bounce back and have a good year. So, you know, I think when we get back to play, I think the Mets' depth is going to be a big part of it. I mean, they have a lot of interchangeable parts. And I think and I, I, I think Louis Rojas is going to do a great job as a manager. He's a de- real decent human being. He comes from a great baseball family. I'm really close friends with his brother, Moises. You know, and and I think they have a good, you know, the depth in a short season is going to be a big part of it. I think the Mets have a lot of depth. It's going to really be helpful. Jay, one of the more recent wild rides for Mets fans, and I'm sure even more so from a PR standpoint, was everything that played out with Wilmer Flores a few years ago. Right. Looked like he had, he was on the way out. He was crying on the field. The trade doesn't go through. Then then he plays hero, hitting a walk off home run. What was that experience like around the clubhouse, you know, with, with Wilmer, the way it started and how it ultimately ended? Well, I was in the press box and, you know, and I, I thought the trade was done for the Milwaukee, you know, and then Sandy Alston called me about the eighth and ninth inning and said the trade was not was, was off the table. I guess Gomez's physicals, it turns out he didn't pass his physicals. So I, I went to Wilmer. Wilmer's another stand-up guy, you know, and I said, Wilmer, listen, you're the son, you, everybody wants to speak to you. Are you okay to speak? You know, he was teary-eyed, and he and he just, uh, I mean, he won the fans over what he did on the field. New York fans are a special kind of fans. Once you, once you let them know you care, he, you know, there is crying in baseball. He cried on the field. He let them know that he cared about the team, and, you know, the, the next night he hits the home run against Washington to win. And, you know, it was was Wilmer Flores weekend, and he 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 expressed his love for the New York fans, and that's he, you know he was uh, no matter what he did the rest of the year, he got a standing ovation, ground out, strikeout, pop up. The fans loved Wilmer because he let him know that he cared. Jay, working in a pressure cooker like New York City, and I know you talked about it in your book that because it's the number one media market, it's difficult on players. But I would imagine it it was difficult on you at times as well. Even through the 80s, the big personalities, and one guy we haven't mentioned is a guy like Greg Jeffries, who butted heads oftentimes too. Were there there difficult moments for you? I mean, you seem like such an easy laid-back guy. Yeah, what I, the thing is, you have, in, for, there are really three segments a PR guy has to work with. Number one segment is the ownership. They're, you know, they hired you. You have to have allegiance to them. Then they're the players. You have to have the trust of the players. You have to try have the trust of the media. The problem is the media thinks you're, you're partial to players. Players think you're partial to the media. And sometimes <laughs> the ownership thinks you're partial to the other two guys. You just have to establish a, a, a layer of trust with the, with the with the players. Let them know you, you care. Not to go to them all the time asking if they have a problem. You know, we used to do things in the '80s like have group interviews to to take the burden off of people. You know, when you know when Doc and 
and Daryl had their problems and Keith had his problems in the 80s with, with stuff went on in Pittsburgh. Just to be there as a buffer, to let them know is it wasn't a one-way thing. And I had to let the players know that you could be trusted. And they said one thing I was able to do to let them know that they could trust me. I wasn't going to betray their trust. And, you know, they always say what goes on in the locker room stays in the locker room. And they knew they had a friend in Jay Horowitz. Who's, and this is going to be a hard question to answer, but who is the best Met you've seen? That, that really is a hard answer. There's a lot of one and one A's. I mean, it's the top of my head. I'm probably closer to the 86 team because when I started when I was 34, so I was, you know, 39, 40. But guys, you know, you know Mookie and Mazzilli and Leiter, David Wright and John Franco, uh, it's really hard. You know, it's really hard to to name one guy. I know it's slightly, but one guy I wanted to give a lot of credit to was my first manager, Joe Torrey. When I first started in 1980, I was a young kid out of Fairleigh Dickinson. You know, Joe took me under his wing on our first road trip to Montreal. He took me to a tie shop in uh, in Montreal. He bought me seven of the ugliest ties to wear. You know, these big fat ties. I had to wear them for three straight weeks. But Joe taught me the ins and outs, how to get along in the locker room. He introduced me to all of his friends, Reggie Jackson, Pete Rose, George Brett. And Joe, to this day, is a good friend. And whenever I need anything charity-wise, he's always here for me. But I've been blessed with a lot of great managers, you know, Willie Randolph, Terry Collins, Bobby Valentine, you know. And, and I can honestly say, you can think I'm just being a PR guy. I can't think of one player I had an adversary relationship with. I try to treat the 25th guy like the number one guy. And if anything, Wyatt was able to succeed, that's probably the thing. You, you can't show favoritism in the locker room. You have to show the guys, you treat everybody the same. And that's what I tried to do. Yeah, there's even a story in the book where, you know, you and Dave Kingman may not have been the best buddies, but he did live in your house for a little bit. So the door was was always yeah, open. We have a place in there. So I lived in my house in New Jersey. And, you know, when Dave came, you know, he didn't have the greatest relationship with the press. When we came back to the Mets a second time, he tried. He bought the pen and the uh, writers, you know, autographed pens for his first press conference. So it was spaced two or three weeks in 1981. He, he shared a bedroom in my house and, and he paid the tolls when we went over to George Washington and tried borrowing. <laughs> so he did, he did try. I mean, he did try to, he did try to do his best. Jay, I love City Field. I know it is one of the best ballparks in all of Major League Baseball. But, you know, I grew up watching games at Shea Stadium, and I still occasionally miss Shea, and I'm sure you do too. And I know people always said, wow, it was a dump. And I always thought, well, it's our dump, though. Right, right. <laughs> so what do you miss most? Shea was my home for 29 years, you know. Uh, I started there, and the games in the 86 World Series when – you know the game against the uh, uh, the Braves in nineteen in two thousand when we came we scored ten runs in the eighth inning to beat your beloved Braves. The place where I grew something, you know, it, you know it was time though. City Field, what's great about City Field is the fans are really closer to the to the to the to the, to the field. Most of the seats are in fair territory. You know, I mean, it's a really it's an old time it's a new park with an old time feel. You know, our, our owners Fred Wil the Wilpons. We're partial to the Dodgers. There's a lot of Ebbets Field in in uh, in City Field, and I think the fans love it. It's, you have a lot of great you know uh, food th things, and it's a it's a great place to get to, easy to get to. So you know, Shea was great, but it was really time to make a move. 
40 years with the uh, Mets organization, started in 1980. You can see at the bottom of your screen the book, and obviously everybody gets it by now. Shawnee, anywhere you buy books, you can find this book, Mr. Met, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target. Again, wherever you buy books, you can find this book. Um, Jay, we're going to talk with Jeremy Schapp later on um, about the 98 home run race, which, of course, has gotten a lot of play recently with the right. ESPN doc. Um, and I thought he did just a phenomenal E60 with Sammy Sosa. How well do you remember 98? And I don't know if whispers is the right word, but were people talking like, boy, this seems a little uh, not human? Honestly, not, not a whisper. Not, honestly, I don't want to say I look back. I really... Yeah, everybody was just excited about it. We just come off the strike year a couple of years before. It's an added excitement in the game. We had two different personalities. Sammy was outgoing. Mark was pretty quiet. And, and just uh, what they did, I, I mean, I, I in, in my area, I had no idea. And, I, yeah. you know, and we, you know, Steve Traxler, one of our pitchers, was a part of that documentary. He actually gave up number 62 to McGuire. So he was a uh, part of the documentary. But I can honestly say I did not, did not whisper at all from my end. Who is the funniest Met player you ever came across? Well, John Franco, hands down. I mean, he could have, I could have written a, an entire book about all the practical jokes he played on me. Uh, my probably my favorites were in Los Angeles, the old Biltmore Hotel. Johnny unscrews the horse head from the lobby, gets the keys to my room, goes up to my room, puts uh, shuts the lights off my room, puts the horse head under my under my covers, puts ketchup on my on my pillow. When I got into my room, I thought he was gonna have a heart attack. Lieutenant guard wakes on my room. I thought I had a dead horse in my in my in my bed. He would do things like put dead rats in my work bag, put white on my glasses when we traveled, cut my ties, put ice cream sandwiches in my in my in my suit jacket. But you know what? He always used to say to me, Jay, if the boys don't like you, they won't mess with you. So I guess they must have liked me a little bit. For 40 years, they did nothing but mess with me. That's incredible. What's your favorite, maybe not specific team, but I guess era of Mets to be around? You've been around so many different you know, squads and managers and players. What's sort of your favorite bunch of guys? Well, again, I, I go back to, you know, there's really two sets of guys. I mean, the 80, the, from 84 to 90, when Davey was the manager, you know, we were, either, we were either first or second that year. And we had, you know, the wild card was, was, in, was in effect back then. We've been in the playoffs every year. And, you know, the second was probably the, the Bobby Valentine team in 1999 and 2000 wasn't the most talented group of guys in the world. When we got Mike Piazza, we saw, we got him from the Marlins, kind of turned the team around. We had you know, really pros, pros like Ventura and Zeal and, uh, and Alfonso and Al Leiter and Johnny Franco and Turk Wendell and Dennis Cook. You know, we really, you know, I think the 2000 team is probably the most underappreciated team in Mets history. We won 90 plus games, swept through the playoffs. Unfortunately, we lost to the Yankees, a great Yankee team, in, in, five, in five games. And we, and we lost by five runs in five games. And we won one game. So really, that was an unappreciated team. And that year, we had the you know, the, the, the 9-11 attacks in there. So I was kind of that team was kind of special team, too. The book is Mr. Met. Shawnee, let me interrupt the entertainment here just for a trip down memory lane, if I could. Jay, you're from 
Well, I think you're technically from New York, right? But you lived much much of your life in Clifton, New Jersey. Yeah, I was born from, in the Bronx and moved to Clifton, where my family's about six. Yeah, so and I'm from Glen Rock, so Passaic to Bergen County. Right. Um, and I grew up going to FDU basketball games. My mom was a math professor there in the 90s. So Tom Green was the head coach. Elijah Allen was a star guard. Can you tell... Uh, a story about your early days at FDU. Um, you got a technical as a sports information. My first day at a job, yeah. My first day at a job. Uh, we're playing. Uh, we're playing the University of Maine in Orono, Maine. And I, you know, I come from NYU. We had just dropped Division One basketball, so I was the official scorekeeper that day. I inadvertently transposed the names in the scorebook. I wrote the numbers down wrong. So we started the game with two technical fouls. And we wound up losing 68 to 67 in overtime. Oh, so Al Balbo, good friend of mine, he was a coach, great coach, Coach Wachowski and Bobby Knight up in Army. He goes by the scorer's table and he uses an excellent. Now I know why dot, 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 NYU dropped basketball. You're a moron. And that was, But it got better. Al and I became good friends and we had a lot of good tricks. My favorite, one of my favorite FD stories, we had, I got a guy on the All-American name team Redonia Duck Jr. So one year I put him on a cover of the press box in the Tina campus. We had a duck pond. So I bought about five loaves of bread and put through bread into the ducks. Ducks came over to red. We had a picture of red duck on the cover of the press guide with nine ducks around him. One of my favorite memories of Fairly Dickinson. That's good. All right. If not the Mets, What's your what's your number one sports team? Are you a big yeah, Giants? Football Giants, out of doubt. I mean, I, I've had season tickets to the Giants since 1958. I was at the famous overtime game with the Colts in 58 when Alan the Horse Amici ran towards my section, and uh, I was uh, I was take the losses a lot harder than I do now. Do you, I know you guys remember the Joe Pasarczyk game when he fumbled on the last play of the game trying to uh, hand off to Larry Zonka. And uh, and um, Herman Edwards, the future coach of the Jets, picked it up, ran for a touchdown. At that game, I broke my wrist, my radio, and my binoculars. I was so discouraged. But I'm, I'm mature now in my own age. I don't react that well anymore. Well, I love hearing stories like that because that makes you a fan just the way Sean and I are and, and yeah. diehard yeah. And, and passionate about it. Jay, I want to ask you one more thing, and then I'll, I'll leave it to Sean for the final question here. I have to, there's a chapter, and I'm, I'm so glad there was, because I'm fascinated by this story. The Sid Finch chapter, right. I thought was phenomenal. As the PR guy, when somebody approaches you about a fake story, what was it about this one that made you say, you know what, this is this is good PR for our well, club? It was, it was right in my wheelhouse. When I existed at Fairleigh Dickinson, you know, we had a, a one-armed fencer, priest who played hockey, a 43-year-old freshman football player. A guy got hit by pitch 128 times. So Mark Mulvoy and George Clifton uh, came to our GM, Frank Cash, and said, we have this idea for an April Fool's story that the Mets will get announced the signing of a six-foot-six fireball through 180 miles an hour from – I forget what country he was from – and what people didn't realize was in the April Fool's edition, the first paragraph said, this is an April Fool's joke. So the day the story came out, the late Mel Stoneman, Meyer and I could concocted this thing. We had a tent in front of the old Hug and Stengel Fieldhouse in St. Petersburg. And we, we said, this is where Sid was throwing. 
And we had one of our catchers, Ron Reynolds, came out from the uh, throwing section. We had burnt a hole in his glove. And this was Sid's 130-mile-an-hour curveball. <laughs> that day I got calls from the sports editor of one of the New York papers said, how could you give this story to Sports Illustrated? We cover you on a daily basis, blah, 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 blah. I said to the guy, how would you feel if you got a big scoop and we gave it to another paper? We kept the story going for a day or two, but I loved it. You can never do this story today in social media and tweet and Instagram and TikTok. Never could do it. But for that back then in 1995, we kept it alive for a couple of days, which was great. I'll leave you with this one. Jay Horowitz is a name that has been synonymous with the New York Mets for a very long time and will continue to be for a very long time. What do you think your legacy is with the Mets and, and what do you want your legacy to be with the Mets? Just that I cared about people and I, and I cared about more than baseball. I try to help in the community do, do stuff charity-wise, whether 9-11 or help kids with cancer or, or you know visit hospitals to players. And, you know, I, I had a great group of guys I really understood it was more more than to baseball you know getting back to guys like you know Clint Hurd and Leiter and David Wright they all were really did a lot of charity so just the fact we made a difference in the community you know we won some games we we impacted some kids lives and probably if anybody remember me for that that's what I hope they remember before Jay, this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, as Thank Sean you, said, your, your name is synonymous with the franchise. Well, you are a legend in, in the sport of baseball. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Again, you go buy the book. Even if you aren't a Mets fan, go buy the book. Read it the way I did. The, the stories are phenomenal. Yeah. You will love every single page in this book, Mr. Met. Jay, thank you so much. Thank you for your time, guys. I appreciate it. Be safe, everybody. Thank you. you. Jay Horowitz. Really cool, Shawnee, huh? How well, about that? Yeah, that was great. I mean, I've I've heard that name. I mean, they, you know, they talk about Jay on a lot of the, the Mets telecasts. Yep. I've, I've known that name for a long time as a Mets fan, for a long time. And it's great to be able to get to, to, to meet him like this and to talk to him and, and hear some of the stories because that's a perspective that just people don't have. You know, that that's such a unique position to be in with a team where you get and I'm sure there are a lot of stories that he can tell, even right. even in the book. Um, but it's great to hear from that perspective. And it's nice as a fan of the team to kind of hear him say that, look, I've been here all these years and really there and you know, you know, you sure you butt heads from time to time, but for him to basically say, like, you know, for the vast majority, like it's just good people around the organization. So that that's nice to hear. Couple of people watching here, friends of ours, phenomenal interview guys. And Sean, you'll love this. Our guy Dan Levy, all these years later. Yes, Dan, Sid Finch was fake. <laughs> it's a 1985 Sports Illustrated article. Um, the, the book, I'm telling you, the book is so good. And I did, I went in thinking, what am I really going to get out of this? Um, but Jay has such a way, as you could tell, he was happy to tell that FDU technical story. He has such a way of poking fun at himself even that he yeah. tells these stories that are embarrassing to him but hilarious to read because we're on the outside looking in and and obviously his personal relationships with the players he's got really good stories about that too so go check it out uh it's mr met how a sports mad kid from jersey became like family to generations of big leaders how about the john franco stuff i mean that and it's funny there are there are some things in the book about Franco, but not what Jay gave us there, which was phenomenal. Yeah, that was good stuff. Good yeah. stuff, man.
What do you think? We're getting baseball this year or not? I, I, are we going to do this every week? Will we will we be back next week saying, are we going to play baseball or not? Look, I, I don't think I don't think we're going to get a sixty game, you know, in that range type of season. And unfortunately, I think that might be the only way we play baseball. So, like, no, I, I just don't. I don't know, man. I don't know. I, I want to say yes so badly, and I, I really think the answer is no. Wow. I feel like they got to get figured out unless something obviously coronavirus related interferes. It just feels like they have to figure something out. Look, do you want to win a ring after the season? No, no, no. You Look, know. I'm at the point now where even with sports that are in the postseason, just get ready for next year. It's fun. it's June 8th, it's June 19th today, right? We haven't played a single. Yeah, you're telling me we're going to finish the regular season in basketball, right? They're going to play like eight games or something. Yeah. Okay. So then I'm going to start that until basically August 1st, and we got to go through that. Then you're going to go through an entire grueling playoff process, be popped out at the end of the year when you're already supposed to be in the next season. That's assuming everything stays okay with Corona, and it's not staying okay. By the way, it's going south in a lot of states. So. No, do what you can to protect the players and the league right now so that you can be ready to go with a fresh season. I hate to lose it. I hate to lose a season. I hate to lose a chance at a championship for everybody, but it just doesn't seem realistic. All right, 20 minutes from now, noon straight up, uh, Jeremy Schapp from ESPN will jump on with us. Uh, he covered the 1998 home run race between McGuire and Sosa did a long-form sit-down interview with Sammy Sosa and E60 for ESPN. He is such a sports historian that I can't wait to get his perspective on what's currently going on, uh, not just in baseball, but the world in sports overall in terms of, of this interruption. Um, and then he's also a big boxing guy. Tyson and Holyfield are getting back into fighting shape. What the heck is that about? I can't wait to ask Jeremy. By the way, before we get out of here, um, I know this is a big day with, with Horowitz and Chat, but it was supposed to be, believe it or not, a bigger day for you. This was the wedding day. Yeah. What is that like? You're now on the wedding day and no wedding. What's the reaction to that? It's been so long coming that you almost, I mean, you obviously recognize the date for what it was going to be, but ultimately it hasn't been in my mind as the wedding date for a while now. Would you think in the future you'll have to do like something on this day as the anniversary to no, just the one you get just the one. Yes. Okay. Today. That's it. Okay. Right. Then it's May 7th every year after this. Okay. Good. Yeah. And listen, you said this last night at work. We, we would have done these interviews anyway. If you of were course. married, they say, yeah, well, we'll get to the wedding on time. Yeah, we'll have to, all right. I'll, I'll do the podcast in the tux right. and we'll hop in the limo yeah. as soon as we're done. Yeah, exactly. And we would have too. Yeah. Can't skip Shap. No way. No, no. All right, bags. Take a breather. Uh, we're back in 20 minutes, everybody. Thanks for hanging out. We'll see you with Jeremy Shap at noon.